0: American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. So I want to thank Leah for inviting me and what I want to talk about today is the story of national expansion in the American West or Western expansion. Uh, and how it's a way not only of acquiring new territory, new land, but also new people, new populations. And I have found over the the years of doing some TAH uh, sessions like this, uh, that it's useful to understand that foreigners become Americans not only through the process of immigration, but also through the process of American expansion, of Western expansion. So in the 19th century, hundreds of thousands of so-called foreigners, men and women who are different from Anglo-Americans in their religion, in their language, in their race and ethnicity, become Americans simply by virtue of their homelands becoming part of the United States through acquisition, conquest, and diplomacy. So I want to focus on Texas and the Mexican War and the California Gold Rush. We're going to be rushing through a lot of history very quickly. Uh, but I'm going to begin with a short prelude on the Louisiana Purchase, and then I'll end with considering this connection between Western expansion and American diversity. And I have to just tell you right off the bat that part of the reason this appealed to me is that I often hear, especially from the sort of more conservative people that I uh, ac- encounter, and they'll say, it's like, well, you know, it's very important that you know this be an English first country and... After all, this country was created by English-speaking Americans. And I said, well, no, (laughs) just not true. You know, it's like, uh, so we'll sort of consider that again, you know, at the end. So turning to the Louisiana Purchase. So before 1803, when Americans on the East Coast looked to the West, their sense of a Western border was the Mississippi River. But after the Louisiana Purchase, the Young Republic almost doubles in size. And when Lewis and Clark's map is published, all of a sudden the Pacific Ocean comes into view. So from the East Coast after Lewis and Clark, you can see the Pacific Ocean. You can imagine the Rocky Mountains uh, and strange new places like Oregon and Colorado. And the Louisiana Purchase actually contains or will contain parts of 15 future states. I would ask you to name them, but there's not enough time, so we'll just move right on. Or you can think about that. Uh, And yet, we talk about the Louisiana Purchase as if it's a big blank piece of land. Don't you always think, this? oh, the Louisiana Purchase? Uh, It's like, well, there's nobody out there. It's like, well, that's so not true. Uh, And it's interesting, because when we went through the bicentennial of the Louisiana Purchase, I gave so many talks and i every time a book would come up i have like shelves at bookshelves at home that are just books that came out in that celebration period you know it was really it was actually quite the sort of uh, easy commerce for for those of us who are sort of experts in this area it, surprisingly i think b- the louisiana purchase is contested one party wants it a lot and the other party the federalists don't want it and the jeffersonians do and so you're partially right about that. The Jeffersonians project this as a big you know, empty land where small yeoman farmers can rush in. You know, and Jefferson is actually thinking, even at the time, that this land, this purchase, will secure the future of his political party. And he's not wrong about that, you know, because out of the Louisiana Purchase come what we would consider today many red states. You know, and it's like he's thinking in advance about that. The Federalists, mostly centered around New England, although not, not just in New England, they think it's a waste of money. And they want it to be limited to the original object, which was just to get a hold of the Port of New Orleans for commercial reasons. So a mixed answer on that. So are they projecting this as an empty space? Yes, and that is partly, you know, that is part of the agenda. you know. But what was amazing to me is that when all these new books came out, uh, People still didn't talk about the actual inhabitants of the Louisiana Purchase. I can't tell you how many books came out and made the Louisiana Purchase this whole sort of uh, struggle between Jefferson, the New World guy, and Napoleon, the Old World guy. Uh, and so, who actually lived in the Louisiana Purchase? Well, there were a quarter of a million Indian people, and that's a very low estimate. Uh, and the Purchase also contained, the area contained about 50,000 non native people free and slave, black and white, and the vast majority of them speaking uh, French. And we know as little about them today as we did then. So uh, looking at some of our little pictures here, uh, this is a picture of New Orleans as it appeared in 1803. And here are people sailing down the Mississippi from the Ohio River area on their flatboats bringing things to New Orleans. And there's just a map of, uh, of uh, New Orleans as it appeared again then. Uh, so I'll just leave it on that. So the Port of New Orleans in 1803, now part of the United States, contained about 10,000 people. It was immediately the Young Republic's seventh largest city. In the next couple of decades, it would climb to the fourth largest city in the United States. The second largest town the Louisiana purchased was St. Louis, uh, which had a metropolitan a uh, population of about two to 4,000 people in 1803. Now, unfortunately, from the perspective of most American leaders, the residents of these towns were French. Politicians uh, from both parties wondered out loud, how do you make good Americans out of these French inhabitants? Uh, and in fact, fights broke out at the celebration, at the ball to celebrate the uh, transfer from, uh, from French to American sovereignty, over which dance the French quadrille or the Virginia, uh, the French quadrille or the Virginia reel should be played first. So we know from newspaper accounts that there were fights over this. Um, so Jefferson himself wrote to a friend, John Breckinridge in 1803, and he, sa- he worried and he said, quote, the Constitution had made no provision for our holding foreign territory, still less for incorporating foreign nations into our nation. Uh, The Constitution had authorized the admission of new states into the Union. It had implied that the country could expand territorially, but the status of the inhabitants, inquired by such expansion, was totally up to judicial interpretation. And within 20 years, the Supreme Court would rule on that. Most American politicians would have agreed with Congressman Eustace from Boston, who declared, I am not one of those who believe that the principles of liberty can be grafted suddenly upon a people accustomed to a regimen of a directly opposite you. I consider them standing in the same relation as if they were a conquered nation." And one Anglo-American newcomer bluntly suggested at a dinner in St. Louis that it would take many French funerals, that was his words, to improve St. Louis. So what exactly was wrong with the French? Well, to start off with, they were French. Of course, they they acted like French people. They spoke French, so that's strike one. They were also, according to most Anglo-Americans, ignorant of the principles of self-governance being, as it was often expressed, the children of empire. Strike two. And they were Roman Catholic, and therefore, in the thinking of the time, spiritual servants of the pope, strike three. there's lots of things I, could, I would like to go into now, but I won't. But I'll give you a fast note on some of the conflicts that, uh, that occur in places like St. Louis and New Orleans, and even in Detroit, which is also, up until the Civil War, a French-speaking city, which we don't think of, but it was. Um, and one of the things that the French did that annoyed the bejesus out of uh, Anglo-Americans uh, was that after church on Sunday, they'd go out and have a party, go to horse races, they'd have a good time. This was not the Sabbath that Anglo-Americans were used to. Um, and so this idea of going out and having a good time after church was called the Creole Sabbath, and Protestant ministers would constantly attack it. Uh, and I just have to read you one quote. Quote, the French-language newspaper, the big one in New Orleans, is called L'Abbaye, uh, the bee, and it uh, portrayed this group of men quote, "Men who were ordered by God to preach to the world that the dance is a satanic invention, that the Creator gave us the instinct of pleasure only so what we might procure the glory in resisting it. Uh, this didn't work in New Orleans. Uh, as anybody uh, knows if you've ever been to New Orleans, the French successfully resisted this form of cultural assimilation, uh, and it was also true in St. Louis. Where people would go, newcomers would go to St. Louis and find the theaters were having shows on Sundays. There were Sunday newspapers. and this really shocked Anglo-American visitors. And one preacher said, "They boast that the Sabbath will never cross the Mississippi." And uh, I think I'll just show you a couple of slides about this. This, for example, is a, is a uh, typical New Orleans resident in the 1830s, Pauline Boyer. Uh, who had been a harpist at the royal court back in France, but realized there was more money to be made in New Orleans to teach middle-class French children, so she moved to New Orleans. It was not atypical. This is a painting by Edgar Degas, whose, many of whose relatives lived in New Orleans, uh, and he visited them for several years and did a, a series of paintings, and this is the, a painting of his cousins and uncle uh, working at the Cotton Exchange in New Orleans. He did this in the 1880s. Yeah. Right. Uh, and this, like that other Im- image you saw before, was meant to portray something he saw earlier in time, maybe a decade or two earlier. And uh, this is a fellow named uh, Bernard, Bernard de Marigny, uh, who uh, was one of the s- urban developers of New Orleans and is also said to have uh, invented the game of craps, uh, which came from Crapo, which was a nickname, for, you know, Little Frogs, for French people. Um, and that's where craps comes from. Anyway, and also Dixie probably comes from the fact that New Orleans was the financial center of the South and all the bank notes that were issued in New New Orleans were in French and English. And so the the $10 note was D's and people read it as Dix. (coughs) So they were called Dixie notes, probably where that comes from. Now, a more difficult problem uh, than these sort of Creole Sabbaths and learning how to speak French or adjusting to that was probably that of race and cross-cultural relations. In Upper Louisiana, as it was called in that's Missouri today, the French were thought to be too friendly with Indians. Uh, That was a problem for a lot of Americans coming in. But in Lower Louisiana, the problem was the color line, which was anything but black and white. Uh, Newly-arrived Anglo-Americans discovered, usually to their heart, that there were many people of mixed ancestry in Louisiana, and that many of those people were free men and women, not slaves. Um, and I'll show you a picture of somebody. Here is a sugar plantation, so there were certainly slaves in Louisiana. But there are also people like this woman, Angela Labatou, uh, who was a fairly well-off person of color, a Creole of color. They were called down there Jean de Couleur, Uh, By the 1830s, free creoles of color uh, of New Orleans actually had formed a 100-member orchestra, a philharmonic society. One free black in St. Louis, uh, named Jean Boudin, studied violin in France. Another free man uh, in New Orleans named Edmond Dede was admitted to the Paris Conservatoire, later became the conductor of the Bordeaux Symphony. So it's a different way of thinking about this frontier. and I just thought I'd throw out very quickly that a lot of New Orleans early jazz men actually grew up speaking French or some sort of Creole patois. Uh, Barney Bigard, who played with Duke Ellington, Sidney Bechet, Kid Ory, who was the trombone player who made Tiger Rag famous, sang when he recorded vocals, they were mostly in French. And my favorite one, because you've probably heard it from Jelly Roll Morton, whose real name was not Jelly Roll Morton, it was actually Ferdinand Joseph Lamont. You know, and again, grew up speaking Creole. You know, both of his parents were Creole. Now, although they tried hard, Anglo-Americans who encountered this first, and to their eyes, very foreign population, uh, was not able to disenfranchise or marginalize this French-speaking community. uh, Louisiana, to this day, is the only state in the Union that practices civil law, not common law. So, if you want to have a case in Louisiana, you've got to hire somebody uh, that, that has passed a Louisiana bar. Um, and it does make a difference. For example, women had more property rights under civil law. So women actually oftentimes were developers in New Orleans. Uh, it, when you go to New Orleans and you see some of the beautiful ironwork in the quarter, a lot of it was developed by a woman named Pontalba uh, because she could, because she could control property. Uh, the French elite were, uh, there was a French elite there which allowed the French to sort of resist being marginalized. They also had their own French-speaking class of lawyers, that helps, and uh, politicians. And the Anglo-Americans were so frustrated, one wrote, a guy named James Brown, wrote to his friend Henry Clay back in Washington uh, in 1810, why don't we just not allow the French to vote? And it's like he was very frustrated. So in this first uh, non-Anglo-American territory, the rights of citizenship were then contested in the courts. In 1805, the Supreme Court had ruled, territorial residents existed outside the realm of constitutional protections. But by 1820, the French had sort of pressed their case, and Chief Justice John Marshall ruled, quote, the national community was coterminous with national boundaries. And therefore, any any people acquired uh, in a territorial manner, either by conquest or by purchase, were automatically citizens. All right, so the French in Louisiana were a test case. In 1803, Americans had very much underestimated the ability of these new French citizens to fight for their share of political power, to maintain language and customs. Um, And in this case, the new republic had learned to be somewhat flexible. Louisiana helped Americanize the United States culturally, politically, and geographically. Now, if the acquisition of French Louisiana provided at least a partial lesson and tolerance and diversity. The story of territorial expansion that follows marked much more my violence and racism. And so we turned to Texas, uh, which is a different story. A lot of Americans believe that the Louisiana Purchase, I think that does it for our, yeah, okay, we're on to Texas. A lot of people believe Louisiana Purchase had actually included Texas. An opinion Spanish officials were very quick to reject. Those officials regarded American settlers as aggressive and deceitful, and they had good reason to distrust them. Only seven years after the Louisiana Purchase in 1810, a motley crew of planters and frontier toughs captured Mobile and Baton Rouge, which at that point were still part of Spanish West Florida. And remember, at this time, Spain controlled uh, the entire southern portion of North America from East Florida all the way to California except for Louisiana at this point. Uh, Ten weeks after the Americans had taken West Florida by force, the United States government took possession and added this colony to Louisiana, uh, which creates a dangerous precedent. Americans could therefore start thinking they could move to Spanish territory, ignore Spanish laws, set up their own makeshift governments, and hope that the United States would simply take over and legitimate their actions. So a growing number of restless frontier Americans on the make began to consider such actions and they turned their attention to Texas. These people were often known as freebooters or filibusters. And they would justify their schemes on political, economic, and even racial grounds. The Florida issue was settled in 1819 with the Adams-O'Neese Treaty. It's one of those treaties that everybody's kind of like, oh yeah, I've heard, heard of that, but what did that do again? That's what it did, it settled the borders of Florida Uh, and, temporarily, the border of of Texas. Between Louisiana and Texas, the border was now the Sabine River. It's that word that looks like Sabine, but it's actually said Sabine. Um, But Americans didn't care. They looked across the Sabine River and said, why don't we just march into Texas? And after the Battle of New Orleans, Andrew Jackson uh, is said to have remarked, quote, his troops should cut through the Damned Greasers all the way to Mexico City. Andrew Jackson, good stuff. Uh, So now Spanish officials are in a quandary. Texas encompassed a huge area, 267,000 square miles. Its borders were difficult to defend and there were only three settlements in the whole province. There really weren't very many people living in Texas, even native people. Uh, There was the frontier town of Nacogdoches on the Louisiana border. And there was an Indian mission which you see here at Goliad. And then there was also this this capital of San Antonio that had a presidio, had a fort, uh, and that was connected to the rest of Mexico by the Royal Road or the Camino Real. So Spanish officials decided they needed a buffered population, a stable group of colonists who would be law-abiding good Catholics and defend the colony against American freebooters. But right at the moment they decided this, 1821, the Mexican rebellion occurred they were about to pass the colonization law. One American who was there to receive a Spanish land grant was Stephen Austin from Durham, Connecticut, right up the road from New Haven. Uh, And he actually witnessed the rebellion, and he observed for us that there were two political factions jockeying for power, the Federalists, who wanted a Republican government and sort of liberal democratic institutions, social reforms, and the Centralists, who want to maintain the authority of uh, traditional land-holding elite, the military, and the church. The Federalist, the more liberal party, initially gains the upper hands, and they're looking for closer relations with the United States, so they open up the Santa Fe Trail, and they pass a liberal colonization law in 1823, and while he's in Mexico, Stephen Austin actually gets his land grant confirmed, and he helps to draft the Mexican Constitution of 1824. Austin becomes one of a number of impresarios, that's what they were called, uh, and he's granted 67,000 uh, acres of land in exchange for settling 200 families and setting up courts and mills and schools. Texas proves very attractive to American settlers because land is cheaper in, than in the U.S., but in exchange, settlers are expected to become loyal Mexican citizens, members of the Catholic Church. Slavery is prohibited, but slaveholders uh, are allowed to claim that their black laborers were, quote, lifetime indentured servants. So over 20,000 Americans arrive in the 1820s and 30s. Uh, East Texas, Central Texas, becomes a somewhat stable place. East Texas becomes this center of slave smuggling and a haven for desperados uh, from Louisiana and Mississippi, primarily, it becomes commonplace for, uh, for sheriffs in the South uh, to go to try to arrest an outlaw or a debtor and find on the doors the initials GTT, gone to Texas. So, bye. Uh, and uh, this apparently was very common. By the 1830s, hell in Texas had become a mild cuss phrase. General William Sherman says that once said that if he owned hell in Texas, he'd rent Texas and go live in hell. And here you have a little image of the typical Anglo-Texas gentleman. Now, although some uh, Americans, such as Austin, who now referred to himself as Estefan Austin, felt the sense of duty to the Mexican government, most American settlers did not. One group seized a fort near Nacogdoches and proclaimed the Republic of Fredonia in 1826, which sounds like a Marx Brothers movie, Uh, and there were many episodes like this. Andrew Jackson, who is now president, increased Mexican anxieties when he offers to buy Texas for $5 million. Mexican authorities refuse the offer, uh, and then Jackson appoints a minister who tries to bribe officials with well placed loans and ultimately suggests the use of force. The following year, in 1829, the Mexican government sends General Mieri Tehran to uh, investigate conditions in Texas, and his report confirms the government's worst suspicions. It states that Anglo-Texans were now the overwhelming majority, slavery was maintained without pretense, and Anglos had no respect for Mexican laws and laughed at the idea of becoming Catholics. In response, the Mexican government abolishes slavery outright in 1829, passes a new colonization law in 1830, and also provides for the military occupation of Texas with soldiers and garrisons uh, such as the Alamo in San Antonio. The importation of slaves is forbidden. No more immigrants are allowed to come from, quote, adjacent neighboring countries, i.e., the U.S., and foreigners are now required to carry passports. Despite these problems, they don't get anybody else to come in but Americans, so they reopen Texas to immigration in 1833, and Anglos pour in, so that by 1835, Anglos outnumber Mexicans in Texas by 10 to 1. Anglo-Texas' uh, contempt for the Mexican government increases, and the fear of tyranny is now articulated in this political language of U.S. republicanism. On top of this, Anglo-Texans often suppress this, express their sense of superiority in racial terms. So the stage is set. Now, I'll go through this really fast, but I just have to profile very quickly a few of the people who arrive and become these sort of leaders of Anglo-Texas uh, as a group that you might think of as an American version of the French Foreign Legion. One is uh, Sam Houston, who you see here, who's a protege of Andrew Jackson, who had once lived with the Cherokees when he was a youth and they had given him the nickname of the Raven. Uh, Houston serves two terms as a congressman and is elected as the governor of Tennessee, but then his young wife leaves him and Houston resigns. Uh, He goes back to live with the Cherokees, Becomes a terrible alcoholic. The Cherokees give him a new name, Utsiti Arditaski, which in Cherokee means the big drunk. <laughs> Houston reappears in Texas in 1832, and some suggest that Andrew Jackson sent him there to stir up trouble. Another member of this motley crew is James Bowie, born in Kentucky. Bowie uh, was, and his family moved to Louisiana. He's six foot tall had pale blue-gray eyes, a fiery temper, and he said in one fight to have bit his opponent so ferociously that he left one of his teeth in the man's finger. So not a. And this, here you see another image of, of how Texas people fought in, back in the day. And finally we have Davy Crockett, who you see here, born in East Tennessee to a poor family. Crockett is sort of a lovable loser, but he finds out he has a knack for politics. He's elected to Congress, but he breaks with Andrew Jackson over the latter's harsh treatment of the Indians, and because he felt that Andrew Jackson did not support legislation that would truly benefit the lower classes who had elected him. So Crockett writes an autobiography that appears in 1834, and this is a later edition here. Uh, but he's defeated in his reelection bid in 1835, and Crockett's uh, rather disturbed, and he said, Well, You know, his constituents might go to hell, I'll go to Texas, and he goes there to resurrect his political career. So these men, men like Crockett and Bowie and Houston, arrive in Texas to escape past failures and to seek redemption. Broken marriages, alcoholism, debts, political defeats, Texas becomes this new start for a lot of Americans. Crockett, who's very much the storyteller, promises to grin all the Mexicans out of Texas with his words. Heroes are losers, they come to the right place, and the stage is set when General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana is elected president in 1833, but two years later declares himself the dictator. And he gathers an army and he moves north to dislodge the Anglos from the Mexican fort of the Alamo. So he attacks, Santa Ana attacks with his army in 1836. Bowie meets his death on a sickbed, having come down with typhus. Crockett dies in obscurity. Uh, but Sam Houston escapes with the remaining Texas troops, and he keeps retreating, and at a certain point, he actually just surprises Santa Ana, who's divided his forces, and he attacks. All of a sudden, U- Houston turns around, and he screams to his men, remember the Alamo, and kind of lucks into capturing Santa Ana, who calls it quits. Uh, and so the Mexicans withdraw uh, f- to south of the Rio Grande, And this victory represents this sort of apotheosis of Western filibustering and settler colonialism. Somehow, Americans had moved into this big Western territory, this Mexican territory, and made it theirs. A frontier people, very confident in their own political and racial superiority, now increasingly feel it is their destiny to rule the continent, even if another nation stands in the way. So the Texans, now let me just see how we're doing on time. I think we're doing pretty well. Let's see, when am I supposed to stop? We're sort of at the halfway mark. Ah, perfect. I'm at the halfway mark here. All right, deep breath. Now, so the Texans seek to be annexed by the United States. A precedent established by the takeover of Spanish West Florida. The New Texas Republic with Sam Houston as its president establishes a, general, a generous land policy, so settlers come all over. There's sort of Texas fever in the air. By 1846, the population of Texas has increased to 142,000. <coughs> outgoing U.S. president, John Tyler, pushes Texas annexation through Congress in 1845. Mexico responds by breaking off diplomatic relations, and the two republics now prepare for war. Now, most Americans at this point believed in the destiny of the American Republic. Combining a belief in the universal truth of Protestant Christianity, and equating the cause of humanity with the spread of democratic institutions, Where have we heard this before, exporting democracy, uh, many Americans felt that the U.S. had its historic mission to fulfill. John L. O'Sullivan, editor of the Democratic Review and the New York Morning Star, he's a New York journalist, Uh, he writes the following, he says it's America's, quote, manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. So it's a New York journalist who coins that phrase. His phrase, manifest destiny, becomes the rallying cry of so-called Young America, a coalition of northern urban Democrats and Southerners pushed the agenda of territorial expansion as an economic panacea for poor white farmers, slave owners, and also recent immigrants. So predictably, the soldiers who fight in the Mexican War are primarily southerners, midwesterners, and immigrants from the Northeast. (coughs) Most Whigs remain opposed to military measures, preferring the idea of commercial expansion over territorial acquisition. Ironically, sons of the two most prominent anti-war Whigs, Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, uh, will die as soldiers in the Mexican War. New Englanders were especially wary of southern expansionists, yet New Englanders also looked favorably on the idea of a Pacific port that could further their own economic goals. And some New England evangelicals support the idea of a war with Mexico as a means of increasing the Protestant Republic at the expense, as it is often said, of the evil empire of the Pope. The new president, James Knox Polk, there he is, uh, had won the election in part because of his stance towards Great Britain over the Oregon issue 54 40 year fight. In June of 1846, the Oregon issue is settled diplomatically with England, and Americans now turn their attention again to Texas and Mexico. And the language of manifest destiny takes an increasingly racial tone. As war looms, some Americans still consider themselves the apostles of democracy suggesting the Mexicans would benefit from the arrival, quote, of a settled form of free government. But more and more Americans began to feel that some races were innately inferior and would never know how to sustain and benefit from a free society. Sam Houston declares that Mexicans, quote, were no better than Indians, and I can see no reason why we should not go in and take their lands. As the war began, such sentiments became widespread. One soldier wrote, quote, As to the miserable inhabitants, the same fate will await them that happens to the Indian tribes of our own frontier. They will naturally vanish before civilization. And the Illinois State Register writes in July of 1846 that the Mexicans, quote, are reptiles in the path of progressive democracy. They must either crawl or be crushed. This racist tone bothered those who viewed the impending war with Mexico as nothing more than a conspiracy of the slaveocracy, as it was called, to extend that particular or peculiar institution. One member of the anti-slavery wing of the Democratic Party, David Wilmot, proposes his Wilmot Proviso. It's another one of those little phrases from the textbooks, oh yeah, Wilmot Proviso, what was that? Uh, That would ban slavery and any territories acquired with war with Mexico. Uh, The bill fails to pass the Senate, but shapes this acrimonious debate over slavery and Western expansion that will become increasingly bitter in the years to come. If the Wilmot Democrats, or barn burners as they were called, favored expansion as long as it meant free white expansion, some Southern Whigs complained that uh, conquests were just unconstitutional, Texas annexation could be justified as the inevitable result of a western people. It disintegrated disintegrated from Mexico in the natural course of events. But an aggressive war of conquest was not acceptable to some constitutional whigs. To such critics, President Polk promised what he called a limited war, a 19th century Vietnam or Iraq. Finally, there were those who simply thought that imperialism and republicanism were strange bedfellows. The very idea of a republican empire seemed a contradiction. But most simply pointed to the map and claimed, it was obvious that God had laid out the landscape with some intention in mind. So-called natural borders were invoked, though these depended on the historical moment. The borders varied over time. Sometimes it was the St. Lawrence River, then it was the Mississippi, the Rocky Mountains, the Pacific Ocean, Hudson Bay, the Gulf of Mexico, Ultimately, the Sandwich Islands, or Hawaii. Whatever doubts some Americans had, the public sentiment was generally in favor of the war, and the new popular press, new machines could print 10,000 copies an hour, fanned the flames of public sentiment. There were some conscientious objectors, such as Henry David Thoreau, who was jailed when he refused to pay taxes that would support the war. But when the federal government issued the call for volunteers, the initial response was overwhelming. And it's important to understand there was a growing sentiment for war in Mexico. Many Mexicans felt the United States had already trampled upon Mexican national interests and pride. There was a growing popular demand to retake Texas. Unfortunately, for the Mexicans, the Republican was not in good shape economically or politically in 1846. They had shaky finances uh, and were subject to bullying by France and Great Britain over their failure to maintain debt payments. So President Polk sends General Zachary Taylor to Corpus Christi, Texas with a force of 4,000 men in the summer of 1845. In the fall, he sends John Slidell of Louisiana to negotiate American claims of damages suffered by our country's merchants in Mexican soil. Slidell is instructed to offer Mexican officials a release from those claims, $2 million, in exchange for recognition of the Rio Grande as the border of Texas. He's further instructed to offer an additional $5 million for the rest of New Mexico, and as much as $40 million for California. The offer outrages Mexican officials, and Slidell is ordered to leave Mexico City, and as soon as he hears that Slidell's mission has failed, Polk orders Zachary Taylor to move his troops to the Rio Grande. This uh, movement, this action, provokes a Mexican attack, and the declaration of war is issued. And even before the declaration, Polk sends a naval squadron to California uh, and the Gulf of Mexico. Now, I'll pass over the war very quickly. Taylor's forces capture Monterey in September of 1846, reinforced. And, and one of the interesting things about the Mexican War, as you will see, is that we actually have daguerreotypes. It, Along with the Crimean War, is the first war that we have photographic images of. Uh, so here's some battle scenes here. Uh, General John Wool, uh, with some 5,000 American soldiers, meets Santa Ana's 15,000-man Mexican army near Hacienda named San Juan de la Buena Vista in February of 1847, which you see here. In this battle, the two armies basically fight to a sand- standstill with many casualties on both sides. Santa Ana withdraws, much to the chagrin, chagrin of his soldiers, and uh, he gathers his troops to put up a last stand. At this point, Polk orders General General, uh, Winfield Scott to land an army on the Gulf Coast and march to Mexico City. So they land 12,000 troops in the fortified city of Veracruz. The town is shelled and quickly surrenders, not until many Mexican civilians are killed. American soldiers entering the town find the streets littered with the bodies of dead animals. Uh, Scott then begins the 250-mile march inland towards the capital. Supplies are gathered for the March, 500,000 bushels of of oats and corn and a large quantity of red cotton office tape, I like things like this as you can tell, to tie around bundles of official documents, this red cotton uh, tape, and that's where the phrase red tape comes from, from this sort of uh, red cotton cloth that was used to tie up bundles of documents. Santa Ana's soldiers put up several last stands, but on September 14, 1847, uh, the American flag is raised over a foreign capital for the first time in U.S. history. In the meantime, General Stephen Watts Carney captures Santa Fe in August of 1846, marches with a small force directly to California, and there he joins forces with the naval commander Robert Stockton, and defeats a Mexican army in Los Angeles. So, war over. So what's the consequences of all this? From the perspective of the United States, the Mexican War is an unqualified success. There are 13,000 deaths recorded. Over 10,000 of them actually come from disease, not from Mexican weapons. Many soldiers weakened from a steady diet of hard bread, fat meat, and coffee. Excuse me. Seek to drown their troubles in whiskey and local Mexican and tacos. Intoxicants such as pulque and aguardiente. Disciplinar, uh, disciplinary actions could not cure the thirst for alcohol. Many took to stealing food from Mexican civilians. And here you have an early image taken by a, an, a, uh, an Army officer, American Army officer, um, of a Mexican family. Many took to stealing food from Mexican civilians, but such incidents were harmless compared to the frequent episodes of rape and murder. One group of eight Texans rides up to a Mexican ranch and quote, began helping themselves to pigs and chickens. When the owner came out of the house with his small son to complain, they shot them both and killed two servants. One group of volunteers actually marching on the way to Mexico through Texas, go by way of Mobile, Alabama, which is a French Creole town, Uh, and they stop and almost rape a young Creole French Creole woman in Mobile, uh, but are stopped in time by their father. The soldiers had reasoned that any woman with a darker complexion was fair game. And one newspaper actually writes that the United States should not only annex Mexico, but they should now go to work and quote, annex her daughters. The prevailing attitudes of the invading Americans were ones of hostility and superiority. Many Americans look upon the Catholic faith as one of the basic, quote, flaws in Mexican society and advocate that it be, again, quote, rooted from the soil. One group of Ohio volunteers observing Ash Wednesday services in a Catholic church in the town of Puebla take a piece of cork and use it to apply marks all over their faces in an attempt to mock and offend the Mexican congregation. And a number of the Catholic soldiers in the U.S. Army are very disturbed by this. Mexican officials in turn try to use religion to persuade Catholic American soldiers, mostly Irish and German uh, immigrants from the Northeast to desert, and about 7,000 American soldiers do in fact desert, which is a comparable figure to the Civil War. Most of the deserters are sort of typical Protestant foreign boys, but several hundred Catholic deserters wind up fighting in the Mexican army, forming a unit known as St. Patrick's or San Patricio Battalion. Towards the end of the war, a number of the men from this battalion are captured by the American army and hung as traitors. All in all, the Mexican War is far from being a noble event in our history. It's clear enough that some found it all too easy, in the words of one historian, to, quote, hate and kill in far-off Mexico. On February 2nd, and I'll give you one slightly nicer image from all this, and again, this is an old daguerreotype, and the American uh, lieutenant, who you see in the middle in the midst of these Mexican children, is actually Abner Doubleday, who was a lieutenant in the, in the uh, Mexican War. And he was well-loved, apparently, by all the Mexicans he encountered and was the few, one of the few American soldiers who spoke fluent Spanish you know, and apparently had a much you know, nicer attitude towards uh, the country he was invading. So a slightly better image there. Now, all in all, it's not a very nice event to have to talk about. On February 2nd, 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is signed. By which the United States acquires all of California, Texas, New Mexico, and parts of several other states for $15 million in conscience money. The war makes the US the dominant nation in North America, as it probably would have been anyway, but it's interesting to note this contrast. In 1824, the United States of Mexico, as that nation called itself, had a population, and I think these are interesting figures, of six million people and a territory of 1.7 million square acres. That same year, 1824, the United States has a population of 9.6 million people and a territory of 1.8 million acres. So the two republics had been surprisingly similar in size and population. After the Mexican War, over half of Mexico, a million square miles, Uh, More than the Louisiana Purchase is transferred to the US. And by 1853, there are 23 million Americans compared to about 8 million Mexicans. Uh, And the Empire of Liberty has triumphed. The Americans have liberated a substantial chunk of land belonging to another nation. And the point I want to actually emphasize here is that the US also acquires over 105,000 Spanish-speaking Mexican citizens. There were some in the states who disliked the treaty, and they actually wanted to go and and take over the rest of Mexico. It was called the All-Mexico Movement. It probably was opposed, for the most part, by those who worried that this would simply extend slavery, but also extend citizenship to those they considered inferior because of race, religion, and language. Now, for the moment, most Americans ignore this new diverse population within its borders and focus on the glories of being a bi-coastal country with global pretensions. Manifest destiny reaches a fever pitch and Americans are ready, quote, to annex all creation. And I love this quote. One American in Paris in 1860 offers the following toast at a party. All right. I give you the United States, bounded in the north by the aurora borealis, in the south by the procession of the equinoxes, bounded in the east by primeval chaos, and bounded in the West by the Day of Judgment. (laughs) And truly, the nation seemed to be blessed. Approximately a week before signing the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, gold is discovered at Sutter's Mill in California. Wow. How lucky was that, huh? News reached the East six months later, and here you see a picture of Mr. Sutter, at whose mill and farm gold was discovered. And here we have some, uh, some early gold fever uh, folks. This is how they were pictured by Currier Ives, uh, being sort of foolish Easterners on their way out west. And the gold rush was probably the greatest American event since the Revolution. It sparked global interest. Paris went wild. I was saying to Leah before, over 30,000 French-speaking people are in California by the 1850s. For decades, the second most spoken language in Los Angeles after Spanish is not English, but it's actually French. And there are whole French districts. The wine growing industry is actually started by the French. And I found out last year that the French dip sandwich is actually invented by a French restaurant in Los Angeles in this period. Also, an estimated 25,000 Chinese come to what was called Golden Mountain. In 1852 alone, just in that one year, 25,000 Chinese. Mostly Cantonese sojourners from South China, whose passage would be paid by Chinese labor contractors. And would-be miners come from Chile, from Mexico, and even from Australia. There's a substantial group of people who come from Australia. I wish there were more time to describe the gold rush. I'll show you a few slides very quickly. Again, these are images of the the would-be miners. And how they go to California, as you can see, by ship, by sail, even by these fanciful sort of air transports. And there's a close-up from the other one. Here's sort of an early sort of jet that this guy is using to get to California. Now, I, I, I don't have time to talk too much about the whole Gold Rush experience. We know about the, the grisly story of the Donner Party. It could be an ordeal. Those who survived, and most did survive, faced the prospect of finding gold, which most didn't. Uh, Even those that profited early on wasted their money gambling or saw their gold dust pass into the hands of suppliers or other businessmen. Precious few obtained fortunes, but like most gamblers, the possibility of becoming rich, of hitting a lucky strike, and the phrase comes from the gold rush, lucky strike, uh, obscured the sight of so many failures. And once in a while, Somebody might strike it rich. Here you see some of the boats in San Francisco Harbor. When they heard about the gold, the the sailors deserted the ship and went out to the gold mines. And so there was sort of like a logjam of ships in San Francisco Harbor. And here you see an image of some early Chinese immigrants. And here's one of the lucky few that actually found a nice big gold nugget. Um, But most people didn't. The vast majority of people, it was like the lottery. Okay, Very few people ever struck it rich. Uh, but what counted for most was the experience, because for the majority it was the overland journey to California, it was the experience of a lifetime. Sometimes unpleasant, but still the experience of a lifetime. Like the farmer who went to town to see the circus parade, only to have his horses bolt, his wagon turn over, and his produce ruined, the immigrants discounted their misfortunes because at least as they said back in the day, they had seen the elephant, like the father, uh, the farmer who we're going to overturn because he had seen the elephant, but still, I got to see the elephant. The California gold rush had many consequences, but I'm only going to focus up on one today as a way of summing up the talk. In the process of seeking fortunes, American miners exploited Indian men and raped Indian women. Uh, I, there's a new book coming, coming out shortly by one of our graduate students at Yale on the California Indian experience as a genocide. Uh, and if anything fits, it is actually the experience of California. Uh, American miners restrict and harassed and intimidated foreign miners, especially those from China and Latin America. Frontier dreams of free lands and gold united Americans in a vision of unlimited national expansion. Those who already occupied the land, from Native Americans throughout the West to Frenchmen in Louisiana, Mexicans in Texas and New Mexico, were seen as obstacles to progress. Racism and ethnocentrism justified a variety of responses from violence to, to simpler political bullying. The Chinese who came to California to search for gold often stayed as contract laborers to work on the railroads. After the railroads were built, the Chinese in California and other parts of the West sought other jobs or opened small businesses, but they were viewed as unfair competition, potentially dangerous aliens, and riots broke out in the 1870s, and Congress passes the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 that suspends Chinese immigration, limits the civil rights of Chinese residents, and forbids their naturalization. In short, the frontier experience and Western expansion brings Americans outside of our large urban centers into contact with many people different from themselves for the first time. Too often that Western encounter brings out the worst in us. Yet when Frederick Jackson Turner delivers his famous address, uh, The Significance of the Frontier in 1893, the message received, despite Turner's own complexity, is often simply that the frontier had been this testing grounds for manhood, for self-sufficiency that somehow the land of the frontier was open and free, okay? But that is to suppress and bypass a lot of reality, okay? There were people there, all right? And people were really all that self-sufficient. Nevertheless, that's the message we take from that frontier hypothesis. uh, And it provides a kind of mission statement for people like Theodore Roosevelt, who thought the United States should enter the scramble for empire around the globe. And Roosevelt says in 1899, I have scant patience with those who fear to undertake the task of governing the Philippines because of the expense and trouble and even scanter patience with those who make a pretense of humanitarianism, who cant about liberty and the consent of the governed in order to excuse themselves for their unwillingness to play the part of men. Their doctrines, if carried out, would make it incumbent upon us to leave the Apaches of Arizona to work out their own salvation and declined to interfere in a single Indian reservation. Their doctrines condemn your forefathers and mine for ever having settled in these United States." So for Roosevelt, the frontier had been a great adventure, and Western expansion could be justified as being part of a civilizing mission. What Roosevelt many today ignore is that Western expansion also broadened the definition of being an American by incorporating not only Indians, but also thousands of French and Spanish-speaking citizens. Louisiana was born French. Today, there are still roughly a quarter of a million citizens in that state who use French as their first language. Go no. New Orleans was already an intriguing multicultural and multiracial place in 1803. The American Southwest was a Spanish-speaking region in 1848. Illegal aliens did not make that effect. It was the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. We have discovered in our own days that the old Santa Fe Trail is a two-way street. And the California gold rush was an international frontier. Even while Chinese laborers were suffering discrimination, Anglo-Americans were learning for the first time in the 1850s to eat what they called stir-fried grub. And they used chopsticks at small restaurants in the gold fields And you could tell it was a Chinese restaurant because they would fly little yellow triangular flags. And they were called chow chows. And at one such chow chow, a miner described the food as, quote, exceedingly palatable, but I was not curious enough to inquire as to the ingredients. In short, it was not simply immigration that made us the way we are today, but also the frontier experience, Western expansion itself that gave us our diversity and set us on this long and somewhat arduous road to tolerance and multiculturalism. And we would do well to remember that one of our last territorial acquisitions, Hawaii, in 1898, was a place that was denied statehood until 1959, in large measure because it was known to be a multicultural society with many interracial marriages, and that last Western acquisition, in a sense, has given us our president today. So I will stop there. Thanks.